Hey everyone, welcome back to the AI Alignment Podcast Series at the Future of Life Institute. I'm Lucas Perry, and today we'll be speaking with William McCaskill on moral uncertainty and its place in AI alignment. If you've been enjoying this series and finding it interesting or valuable, it's a big help if you can share it on social media and follow us on your preferred listening platform. Will is a professor of philosophy at the University of Oxford and is a co-founder of the Center for Effective Altruism, Giving What We Can, and 80,000 Hours. Will helped to create the Effective Altruism movement, and his writing is mainly focused on issues of normative and decision-theoretic uncertainty, as well as general issues in ethics. And so, without further ado, I give you William McCaskill. Yeah, Will, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's really great to have you here. Thanks for having me on. So I guess we can start off. You can tell us a little bit about sort of the work that you've been up to recently in terms of your work in the space of metaethics and moral uncertainty just over like the past few years and how that's been evolving. Great. So my PhD topic was on moral uncertainty and then just putting the finishing touches on a book on this topic. And the idea here is to appreciate the fact that we very often are just unsure about what we ought, morally speaking, to do. And it's also plausible that we ought to be unsure about what we ought morally to do. Ethics is a really hard subject. There's tons of disagreement. It would be overconfident to think, oh, I've definitely figured out the correct kind of moral view. And so my work focuses on not really the question of how unsure we should be, but instead, what should we do given that we're uncertain? And in particular, I look at the issue of whether we can apply the same sort of reasoning that we apply to uncertainty about matters of fact to matters of moral uncertainty. In particular, can we use what is known as expected utility theory, which is very widely accepted as at least approximately correct in empirical uncertainty? Can we apply that in the same way in the case of moral uncertainty? Right. And so coming on here, you also have a book that you've been working on, on moral uncertainty that is unpublished. Have you just been expanding this exploration in that book, diving deeper into that? That's right. So there's actually been very little that's been written on the topic of moral uncertainty, at least in modern times, at least relative to its importance. I would think of this as a discipline that should be studied as much as consequentialism or contractualism or Kantianism is studied. But there's really, in modern times, only one book that's been written on the topic, and that was written 18 years ago now, or published 18 years ago. And so what we want is this to be firstly just kind of definitive introduction to the topic. It's co-authored with me as lead author, but co-authored with Toby Ord and Krista Bickfist, laying out both what we see as the most promising path forward in terms of addressing some of the challenges that face an account of decision-making under moral uncertainty some of the implications of taking moral uncertainty seriously, and also just some of the unanswered questions. Awesome. So I guess just moving forward here, you have a podcast that you already did with Rob Wiblin, uh, 80,000 Hours. So I guess we can sort of just avoid covering a lot of the basics here about your views on using expected utility calculus in moral reasoning and moral uncertainty in, in order to decide what one ought to do when one is not sure what one ought to do. People can go ahead and listen to that podcast, which I'll provide a link to within the description. It would also be a good just to sort of get a general sense of where your metaethical partialities just generally right now tend to lie. So what sort of metaethical positions do you tend to give the most credence to? Okay, well, that's a very well put question, because as with all things, I think it's better to talk about degrees of belief rather than absolute belief. So normally, if you ask a philosopher this question, they'll say, I'm a nihilist, or I'm a moral realist, or something. 
because I think it's better to split your credences. So I think I'm about 50-50 between nihilism or error theory and something that's non-nihilistic. And whereby nihilism or error theory, I just mean that any positive moral statement or normative statement or evaluative statement, so that includes, you know, you ought to maximize happiness, or if you want a lot of money, you ought to become a banker, or pain is bad. That on this view, all of those things are false. All positive, normative, or evaluative claims are false. So it's a very radical view. And we can talk more about that if you'd like. In terms of the rest of my credence, the view that I'm kind of most sympathetic towards, in the sense of the one that occupies most of my mental attention, is a relatively robust form of moral realism. It's not clear whether it should be called kind of naturalist moral realism or non-naturalist moral realism. But the important aspect of it is just that goodness and badness are kind of these fundamental moral properties and are properties of experience. The things that are of value are things that supervene on conscious states, in particular, you know, good states or bad states. And the way we know about them is just by direct experience with them. Just by being acquainted with a state like pain gives us a reason for thinking we ought to have less of this in the world. So that's my kind of favored view in the sense it's the one I'd be most likely to defend in the seminar room. And then I give somewhat less credence in a couple of views. One is a view called subjectivism, which is the idea that what you ought to do is determined in some sense by what you want to do. So the simplest view there would just be when I say I ought to do X, that just means I want to do X in some way. Or a more sophisticated version would be ideal subjectivism, where when I say I ought to do X, it means some very idealized version of myself would want myself to want to do X. Perhaps if I had unlimited amounts of knowledge and much greater computational power and so on. I'm a little less sympathetic to that than many people I know. We can go into that. And then a final view that I'm also less sympathetic towards is non-cognitivism, which would be the idea that our moral statements, so when I say murder is wrong, are not even attempting to express a proposition. What they're doing is just expressing some emotion of mine, like yuck, murder, ugh. In the same way that when I said that, that wasn't expressing any proposition, it was just expressing some sort of pro or negative attitude. And again, I don't find that terribly plausible, for again, for reasons we can go into. Right, so those first two views were cognitivist views, which sort of makes them fall under like a sort of a semantic theory where you think that people are saying truth or false statements when they're claiming moral facts. And the error theory and your moral realism are both metaphysical views, which I think is probably what we'll mostly be interested here in terms of the AI alignment problem. There are other issues in metaethics, for example, having to do with semantics, as you just discussed, you feel as though you give some credence to non-cognitivism, but there are also uh, justification views. So like issues in moral epistemology, how one can know about metaethics and why one ought to follow metaethics if metaethics has facts? Where do you sort of fall in, in that camp? Well, I think all of those views are quite well tied together. So what sort of moral epistemology you have depends very closely, I think, on what sort of metaethical view you have. And I actually think often is intimately related as well to what sort of view in normative ethics you have. So my kind of preferred philosophical worldview, as it were, the sort of one I'd defend in a seminar room, is classical utilitarian in its normative view. So the only thing that matters is positive or negative mental states. And in terms of its moral epistemology, the way we access what is of value is just by experiencing it. So in just the same way we access conscious states. There are also some ways in which you can't merely, you know, why is it that we should maximize the sum of good experiences rather than the product or something? 
that's a view that you've got to obtain by kind of reasoning rather than just purely from experience. Part of my epistemology does appeal to whatever this spooky ability we have to reason about abstract affairs. But it's the same sort of faculty that is used when we think about mathematics or set theory or other areas of philosophy. If, however, I had some different view, so supposing we were a subjectivist, well, then moral epistemology looks very different. You're actually just kind of reflecting on your own values, maybe looking at what you would actually do in different circumstances and so on, you know, reflecting on your own preferences. And that's the right way to come to the right kind of moral views. There's also another meta-ethical view called constructivism that I'm definitely not the best person to talk about with. But on that view, again, it's not really a realist view. But on this view, we just like have a bunch of beliefs and intuitions, and the correct moral view is just the best kind of systematization of those in beliefs or intuitions. In the same way as you might think like linguistics, you know, it is a science, but it's fundamentally based just on what our linguistic intuitions are. It's just kind of a systematization of them. On that view, then, moral epistemology would be about reflecting on your own moral intuitions. You just got all of this data, which is the way things seem like to you, morally speaking, and then you're just doing the systematization thing. So I feel like the question of kind of moral epistemology can't be answered in a vacuum. You've got to think about your meta-ethical view of the metaphysics of ethics at the same time. I think I'm pretty interested in here and also just poking a little bit more into that sort of 50% credence you give to your moral realist view, which is super interesting because it's a view that people tend not to have, I guess, in the AI, computer science, rationality space, EA space. Mm -hmm. People tend to, I guess, have a lot of moral anti-realists in this space. So in, in my last podcast, I spoke with David Pierce, and he also seemed to sort of have a view like this. And I'm wondering if you can just sort of unpack yours a little bit where he believed that suffering and pleasure disclose the inbuilt pleasure-pain axis of the universe. Like, you can think of minds as sort of objective features of the world, because they, in fact, are objective features of the world. And the phenomenology and experience of each person is objective in the same way that, you know, someone could objectively be experiencing redness. And in the same sense, they could be objectively experiencing pain. And so it seems to me that, and I don't fully understand the view, but the claim is that there's some sort of inbuilt quality or property to the hedonic qualia of suffering or pleasure that discloses its inbuilt value to that. Yeah. Could you unpack it a little bit more about the metaphysics of that and what that even means? It sounds like David Pierce and I have quite similar views. And so I think relying heavily on the analogy with, or very close analogy with consciousness is going to help where imagine you're the kind of robot scientist. You don't have any conscious experiences, but you're doing all this fancy science and so on. And then you kind of write out the book of the world. And I'm like, hey, there's this thing you missed out. It's like conscious experience. And you, the robot scientist, would say, wow, that's just insane. You're saying that some bits of matter have this first person subjective feel to them. Like, why on earth would we ever believe that? That's just so out of whack with a naturalistic understanding of the world. And it's true. It just doesn't make any sense from given what we know now. It's a very strange phenomenon to exist in the world. And so one of the arguments that motivates error theory is this idea of just, well, if values were to exist, they would just be so weird, what Mackie calls queer. It'd be just so strange that just by a principle of Occam's razor, not adding strange things into our ontology, we should assume they don't exist. But that argument would work in the same way against conscious experience. And the best response we've got is to say, well, no, but I, I know I'm conscious and just tell by introspecting. And I think we can run the same sort of argument when it comes to a property of consciousness as well, which is namely the goodness or badness of certain conscious experiences. 
So now I just want you to go kind of totally atheoretic. Imagine you've not thought about philosophy at all or even science at all. And I was just to ask you, you know, rip off one of your fingernails or something. And then I say, is that experience bad? And you would say, yes. Yeah, it's bad. And I would ask, how confident are you? More confident that this pain is bad than that I, you know, even have hands, perhaps. That's at least how it seems to be for me. So then it seems like, yeah, we've got this thing that we're actually incredibly confident of, which is the badness of pain, or at least the badness of pain for me. And so that's what initially gives the case for then thinking, okay, well, that's at least one objective moral fact that pain is bad, or at least pain is bad for me. Right. So the step where I think that people will tend to get lost in this is when I thought the part about Occam's razor is very interesting. I think that most people are anti-realist because they use Occam's razor there and they think that what the hell would a value even be anyway in a third person objective sense? Like that just seems really queer as you put it. So I think people get lost at the step where the first person that seems to simply have a property of badness to it. I don't know what that would mean if one has a naturalistic reductionist view of the world. There seems to be just like entropy, noise, and quarks, and maybe qualia as well. It's not clear to me how we should think about properties of qualia and whether or not one can derive, obviously, ought statements about properties of qualia to normative statements, like is statements about the properties of qualia to ought statements. One thing I want to be very clear on is just, it definitely is the case that we have really no idea on this view. We are currently completely in the dark about some sort of explanation of how matter and forces and energy could result in goodness or badness, something that ought to be promoted. But that's also true with conscious experience as well. We have no idea how on earth matter could result in kind of conscious experience. But at the same time, it'd be a mistake to start denying conscious experience. And then we can ask, we say, okay, we don't really know what's going on, but we accept that there's conscious experience. And then I think if you were, again, just to completely pre-theoretically start categorizing different conscious experiences that we have, we'd say that, you know, some are red and some are blue, some are maybe more intense, some are kind of dimmer than others. You'd maybe classify them into sights and sounds and other sorts of experiences there. I think also a very natural classification would be the ones that are good and the ones that are bad. And then I think when we cash that out further, I think it's not merely the case. I don't think the best explanation is that when we say, oh, this is good or this is bad, it means what we want or what we don't want. But instead, it's like what we think, you know, we have reason to want or reason not to want. You know, it seems to give us evidence for those sorts of claims. I guess my concern here is just that I worry that words like good and bad or valuable or disvaluable, I feel some skepticism about whether or not they disclose some sort of intrinsic property of the qualia. I'm also not sure what the claim here is about the nature of and kinds of properties that qualia can have attached to them. I worry that sort of, you know, goodness and badness might be some sort of evolutionary fiction which enhances us, enhances our fitness, but that doesn't actually disclose some sort of intrinsic metaphysical quality or property of some kind of experience. One thing I'll say is, again, remember I've got this 50% credence on error theory. So in general, you know, all these questions, maybe this is just some evolutionary fiction, you know, things just seem bad, but they're not actually, and so on. You know, I actually think those are good arguments. And so that should give us confidence in this idea, some degree of confidence in this idea that just actually nothing matters at all. But kind of underlying a lot of my views is this more general argument that if you're unsure between two views, one in which just nothing matters at all, we've got no reasons for action. The other one, we do have some reasons for action then you can just ignore the one that says you've got no reasons for action because you're not going to do badly by its light, no matter what you do. 
you know, if I were to go around shooting everybody, that wouldn't be bad or wrong on nihilism. If I was to shoot lots of people, it wouldn't be bad or wrong on nihilism. So if there are arguments, such as, I think, an evolutionary argument that pushes us in the direction of kind of error theory, in a sense, we can put them to the side. Because what we ought to do is just say, yeah, we take that really seriously, give us a high credence in error theory. But now say, after all of those arguments, what are the views that could, you know, most plausibly kind of bear their force? So this is why with a kind of evolutionary worry, I'm just like, yes, but supposing it's the case that there actually are, presumably conscious experiences themselves are useful in some evolutionary way that, again, we don't really understand. I think presumably also good and bad experiences are useful in some evolutionary way that we don't fully understand, perhaps because they have a tendency to motivate at least beings like us. And that, in fact, seems to be a key aspect of making a kind of goodness or badness statement. It's at least somehow tied up to the idea of kind of motivation. And then when I say ascribing a property to a conscious experience, I really just don't mean whatever it is that we mean when we say that this experience is red-seeming, this experience is blue-seeming. I'm meaning what, again, Owen's philosophical questions, what we even mean by properties, but in the same way, you know, this is bad-seeming, this is good-seeming. Before I got into thinking about philosophy and naturalism and so on, would I have thought those things are kind of on a par? And I think I, I would have done. So it's at least a pre-theoretically justified view to think, yeah, this just is this axiological property of my experience. This has made me much more optimistic. I think after my last podcast, I was feeling quite depressed and nihilistic. And hearing you give this sort of non-naturalistic or naturalistic moral realist account is cheering me up a bit about the prospects of AI alignment and value in the world. I mean, I think you shouldn't get too optimistic. Yeah. I'm almost certainly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Said it's my favorite view, but take any philosopher, what's the chance that they've got the right view? It's very low, probably. Right, right. And I think I also need to be careful here that human beings have this sort of psychological bias where we give a special metaphysical status and kind of meaning and motivation to things which have objective whatever to it. I guess there's also some sort of motivation that I need to be mindful of that seeks out to make value objective or more meaningful and foundational in the universe. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I think should make you feel optimistic, or at least motivated, is this argument that if nothing matters, it doesn't matter that nothing matters. It just really ought not to affect what you do. You may as well act as if things do matter. And in fact, we can, you know, have this project of trying to figure out if things matter. And that maybe could be an instrumental goal, which kind of like is a purpose for life, is to get to a place where we really can figure out if it has any meaning. I think that sort of argument can at least give one grounds for getting out of bed in the morning. Right. I think there's this philosophy paper that I saw, but I didn't read that was like, nothing matters, but it does matter with a one lowercase m and then another like, capital case m, you know. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It sounds a bit like 420 ethics. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So moving on here into AI alignment. And before we get into this, I think that this is something it'll also be interesting to hear you speak a little bit more about before we dive into AI alignment. What even is the value of moral information and moral philosophy generally? Is this all just a bunch of BS or how can it be interesting and or useful in our lives and in science and technology? Okay, terrific. I mean, and this is something I write about in a paper I'm working on and also in the book as well. So yeah, I think the stereotype of the philosopher engaged in intellectual masturbation, not doing really much for the world at all, is quite a prevalent stereotype. I'll not comment on whether that's true for certain areas of philosophy. <laughs> I think it's definitely not true. <laughs> I think it's definitely not true for certain areas within ethics. So. What is true is that philosophy is very hard. Ethics is very hard. Most of the time when we're trying to do this, we make very little progress. 
If you look at the long-run history of thought in ethics and political philosophy, the influence is absolutely huge. Even just take Aristotle, Locke, Hobbes, Mill, and Marx, the influence of political philosophy and moral philosophy there, it shaped thousands of years of human history. Certainly not always for the better, sometimes for the worse as well. So ensuring that we get some of these ideas correct is just absolutely crucial. Similarly, even in more recent times, obviously not as influential as these other people, but also it's been much less time, so we can't predict into the future. But if we consider Peter Singer as well, his ideas about the fact that we may have very strong obligations to benefit those who are distant strangers to us, or that we should treat animal welfare just on a par with human welfare, at least on some understanding of those ideas, that really has changed the beliefs and actions of, I think, probably tens of thousands of people, and often in really quite dramatic ways. And then when we think about, well, should we be doing more of this? Is it merely that we're influencing things randomly or are we making things better or worse? Well, if we just look to the history of moral thought, we see that most people in most times have believed really atrocious things, really morally abominable things. Endorsement of slavery, distinctions between races, subjugation of women, huge discrimination against non-heterosexual people. And in part, at least, it's been ethical reflection that's allowed us to break down some of those moral prejudices. And so we should presume that we have very similar moral prejudices now. We've made a little bit of progress, but do we have the one through theory of ethics now? I certainly think it's very unlikely. And so we need to think more if we want to get to the actual ethical truth, if we don't want to be living out moral catastrophes in the same way as we would if we kept slaves, for example. Right. And I think we do want to do that. But I think that a bit later in the podcast, we'll get into whether or not that's even possible given economic, political, and militaristic forces acting upon the AI alignment problem and the issues with coordination and race to AGI. Okay. So just to start to get into the AI alignment problem, I just want to offer a little bit of context. It is implicit in the AI alignment problem or value alignment problem that AI needs to be aligned to some sort of ethic or set of ethics. This includes preferences or values or emotional dispositions or whatever you might believe them to be. And so it seems that generally in terms of moral philosophy, there are really two methods or two methods in general by which to arrive at an ethic. So one is simply going to be through reason. And one is going to be through observing human behavior or artifacts like books, movies, stories, or other things that we produce in order to infer and discover the observed preferences and ethics of people in the world. The latter set of alignment methodologies are empirical and involves the agent interrogating and exploring the world in order to understand what the humans care about and value, as if values and ethics were simply a physical byproduct of the world and of evolution. And the former is where ethics are arrived at through reason alone and involve the AI or the AGI potentially going about ethics as a philosopher would, where one engages in moral reasoning about meta-ethics in order to determine what is correct. From the point of view of ethics, there is potentially only what the humans empirically do believe, and then there is what we may or may not be able to arrive at through reason alone. So it seems that one or both of these methodologies can be used when aligning an AI system. And again, the distinction here is simply between sort of preference aggregation or empirical value learning approaches or methods of instantiating machine ethics, reasoning, or decision-making in AI systems so they become agents of morality. So what I really want to get into with you now is how meta-ethical uncertainty influences our decision over the methodology of value alignment 
over whether or not we are to prefer an empirical preference learning or aggregation type approach or one which involves an imbuing of moral epistemology and ethical metacognition and reasoning into machine systems so it can discover what we ought to do. And how moral uncertainty and metaethical moral uncertainty in particular operates within both of these spaces once you're committed to some view or both of these views. And then we can get into issues and in intertheoretic comparisons and how that arises here at many levels, the ideal way we should proceed if we could do what would be perfect. And again, what is actually likely to happen given race dynamics and political, economic, and militaristic forces. Okay, that sounds terrific. I mean, there's a lot to cover there. I think it might be worth me saying just maybe a couple of distinctions I think are relevant and kind of my overall view in this. So in terms of distinction, I think within what broadly gets called the alignment problem, I think I'd like to distinguish between what I'd call the control problem, then the kind of human values alignment problem, and then the actual alignment problem, where the control problem is just, can you get this AI to do what you want it to do? Where that's, you know, maybe relatively narrowly construed. I want it to clean up my room. I don't want it to put my cat in the bin. That's a kind of control problem. I think describing that as a technical problem is kind of broadly correct. Second is then the kind of human, what gets called aligning AI with human values. For that, it might be the case that just having the AI pay attention to what humans actually do and infer their preferences that are revealed on that basis. Maybe that's a promising approach and so on. And that, I think, will become increasingly important as AI becomes larger and larger parts of the economy. This is kind of already what we do when we vote for politicians who represent at least large chunks of the electorate. They hire economists who undertake kind of willingness to pay surveys and so on to work out what people want on average. I do think that this is maybe more normatively loaded than people might often think, but at least you can understand that just as the control problem is I have some relatively simple goal, which is what do I want? I want this system to clean my room. How do I ensure that it actually does that without making mistakes that I wasn't intending? There's this kind of broader problem of, well, you've got a whole society and you've got to aggregate their preferences for what kind of society wants and so on. But I think importantly, there's this third thing, which I called a minute ago, the actual alignment problem. So let's run with that, which is just working out what's actually right and what's actually wrong and what ought we to be doing. I do have a worry that because many people in the wider world, often when they start thinking philosophically, they start endorsing some relatively simple subjectivist or relativist views. They might think that answering this question of, well, what do humans want or what do people want is just the same as answering kind of what ought we to do. Whereas for kind of the duck to you of that view, just go back a few hundred years where the question would have been, well, the white man's alignment problem, <laughs> where it's like, well, what do we want society where that means white men? Uh -oh. What do we want them to do? So similarly, unless you've got the kind of such a relativist view that you think that maybe that would have been correct back then. That's why I want to kind of distinguish this range of problems. And I know that you're kind of most interested in that third thing, I think. Is that right? Yeah. So I think I'm pretty interested in the second and the third thing. And I just want to unpack a little bit of your distinction between the first and the second. So the first was what you called the control problem. And you called the second just the plurality of human values and preferences and the issue of aligning to that in a broader context of the world. It's unclear to me how I get the AI to put a strawberry on the plate or to clean up my room and not kill my cat without the second thing having been done, at least to me. 
there is a sense at like a very low level where you're short of working on technical AI alignment, which involves working on the MIRI approach with agential foundations and trying to work on a constraining optimization and corrigibility and docility and robustness and security and all those sorts of things that people work on and like the concrete problems in AI safety, stuff like that. But it's unclear to me where that sort of stuff is just limited to and includes the control problem and where it begins requiring the system to be able to learn my preferences through interacting with me and thereby is already sort of participating in in the second case where it's sort of participating in an AI alignment more generally rather than being sort of like a low-level controlled system. Yeah, so I guess, and I should say that on this side of things, I'm definitely not not an expert, not really the person to be talking to. But I think you're right, there's going to be some big gray area or like transition from systems you know, so there's one that might be cleaning my room, or even let's just say it's playing some sort of game. Unfortunately, I forget the example. It was under the blog post, an example of the alignment problem in the wild or something from OpenAI. But, you know, just a very simple example of the AI is playing a game and you say, well, get as many points as possible. And what you really wanted to do is win a certain race. But what it ends up doing is driving this boat just round and round in circles, because that's the way of maximizing the number of points. Reward hacking. Reward hacking, exactly. That would be a kind of failure of the control problem in that first narrow sense. And then I agree there's going to be kind of gray areas where perhaps it's a certain sort of AI assistant, where the whole point is it's just implementing kind of what I want, and that might be very contextually determined, might depend on what my mood is of the day. For that, you know, that might be a much, much harder problem and will involve kind of studying what I actually do and so on. We could go into the question of whether you can solve the problem of cleaning a room without killing my cat. Whether that is possible to solve without solving you know, much broader questions, but maybe that's not the most fruitful avenue of discussion. So let's put aside this first case, which involves the control problem, we'll call it, and let's focus on the second and the third, where again, the second is defined as sort of the issue of the plurality of human values and preferences, which can be observed. And then the third you described as us determining what we ought to do and, and tackling sort of the meta-ethics. Yeah, We're just tackling the fundamental question of where ought we to be headed as a society. One just extra thing to add on to that is that's just a general question <laughs> for society to be answering. And if there are kind of fast or even medium speed developments in AI, perhaps suddenly we've got to start answering that question or thinking about that question even harder than a more kind of clean way uh, than we had before. But even if AI were to take a thousand years, we would still need to answer that question because it's just fundamentally the question of where ought we to be heading as a society. Right. And so. Going back a little bit to the little taxonomy that I had developed earlier, it seems like your second case scenario would be sort of down to meta-ethical questions which are behind and which influence the empirical issues with preference aggregation and there being a plurality of values. And then third case would be what would be arrived at through reason and I guess the reason of many different people. Again, it's going to involve questions of meta-ethics as well, where, you know, again, on my favorite meta-ethics it would actually just involve interacting with conscious experiences. And that's a critical aspect of coming to understand what's morally correct. Okay, so let's go into the second one first, and then let's go into the third one. And while we do that, it would be great if we could be mindful of problems in inter-theoretic comparison and how they arise as we go through both. Does that sound good? Yeah, that sounds great. So would you like to just sort of unpack, starting with the second view, the meta-ethics behind that, issues in how moral realism versus moral anti-realism will affect how the second scenario plays out, 
and other sorts of crucial considerations and meta-ethics that will affect the second scenario? Yeah, so for the second scenario, which, again, to be clear, is the aggregating a variety of human preferences across a variety of contexts and so on, is that right? Right, so that the agent can be fully autonomous and realized in the world as it is sort of an embodiment of human values and preferences, however construed. Yeah, okay. So here, I do think all the meta-ethics questions are going to play a lot more role in the third question. So again, it's funny, it's very similar to the question of kind of what mainstream economists often think they're doing when it comes to cost-benefit analysis. Let's just even start in the individual case. I don't think it's even there that's not a purely kind of descriptive enterprise, where, again, let's not even talk about AI. You're just looking out for me. You know, you and I are friends, and you're wondering, you want to do me a favor in some way? How do you make a decision about how to do me that favor, how to benefit me in some way? Well, you could just look at the things I do and then infer on the basis of that what my utility function is. So perhaps every morning I go and I uh, rob a convenience store and then I buy some heroin and then I shoot up. <laughs> and Damn well. You know, that's my day. Yes, it's a confession. Yeah, you're the first to hear it. It's crazy <laughs> in Oxford. Huh? Um, yeah, Oxford University is wild. You know, you see that behavior on my part and you might therefore conclude, wow, well, what Will really likes is heroin. I'm going to do him a favor and buy him some heroin. Now, that seems kind of commonsensically pretty ridiculous. Well, assuming I'm demonstrating all sorts of bad behavior that looks like it's very bad for me, it looks like a compulsion and so on. Then, so instead, what we're really doing is not merely maximizing the utility function that's garnered by my revealed preferences, but we have some deeper idea of kind of what's good for me or what's bad for me. Perhaps that comes down just to what I would want to want or what I would want myself to want to want to want. Perhaps you can do it in terms of what are called second-order, third-order preferences. What idealized will would want, but it's not totally clear. Well, firstly, it's really hard to know kind of what would idealized will want. You're going to have to start doing at least a little bit of philosophy there, because I tend to favor hedonism. I think that an idealized version of my friend would want the best possible experiences. That might be very different from what they think an idealized version of themselves would want because perhaps they have some objective list account of well-being and they think, well, what they would also want is knowledge for its own sake and appreciating beauty for its own sake and so on. So even there, I think you're going to get into pretty tricky questions about what is good or bad for someone. And then after that, you've got the question of preference aggregation, which is also really hard, both in theory and in practice, where do you just take strengths of preferences across absolutely everybody and then add them up? Well, firstly, you might worry that you can't actually make these comparisons of strengths of preferences between people. Certainly, if you're just looking at people's revealed preferences, it's really opaque how you would say, if I prefer coffee to tea and you vice versa, who has a stronger preference? But perhaps we could look at behavioral facts to kind of try and at least anchor that. But it's still then non-obvious that what we ought to do when we're looking at everybody's preferences is just maximize the sum rather than perhaps give some extra weighting to people who are more badly off, perhaps we give more priority to their interests. So there's kind of theoretical issues. And then secondly, is kind of just practical issues of implementing that where you actually need to ensure that people aren't faking their preferences. And there's a well-known literature and voting theory that says that basically any aggregation system you have, any voting system, is going to be manipulable in some way. You're going to be able to get a better result for yourself, at least in some circumstances, by misrepresenting what you really want. Again, these are kind of issues that just society already faces, but they're going to bite even harder when we're thinking about delegating to artificial agents. 
there's two levels to this that you're sort of elucidating. The first is that you can think of the AGI as being something which can do favors for everybody in humanity. So there are issues like empirically and philosophically and in terms of understanding other agents about what sort of preferences should that AGI be maximizing for each individual say, being constrained by what is legal and what is generally converged upon as being good or right. And then there's issues with preference aggregation, which come up more given that we live in a resource-limited universe and world where not all preferences can coexist and there has to be some sort of potential cancellation between different views. And so in terms of this higher level of preference aggregation, and I want to step back here to metaethics and difficulties of interthoretic comparison. It would seem that given your moral realist view, it would affect how the weighting would potentially be done because it seemed like before you were alluding to the fact that if your moral realist view would be true, then the way at which we could determine what we ought to do or what is good and true about morality would be through exploring the space of all possible experiences, right? So we can discover moral facts about experiences. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of preference aggregation, there would be people who, who would be right or wrong about what is good for them or the world. Yeah, I guess this is, again, where I want to distinguish between these two types of value alignment problem. Where on the second type, which is just kind of what does society want? Societal preference aggregation. I wasn't thinking of it as there being kind of right or wrong preferences. In just the same way as there's this question of just, I want system to do X, but there's a question of like, do I want that? Or how do I, how do you know that I want that? This is a question of how do you know what society wants? You know, that's a question in and of its own right that's then separate from that third alignment issue I was raising, which then starts to bake in, well, if people have various moral preferences, views about how the world ought to be, yeah, some are right and some are wrong. And no way should you give some aggregation over all of those different views, because ideally you should give no weight to the ones that are wrong. And if any are true, that's, they get all the weight. It's not really about kind of preference aggregation in that way. Though, if you think about it as everyone's making certain sort of guess at the moral truth, then you could think of that like a kind of judgment aggregation problem. So it might be like data or input for your kind of moral reasoning. I think I was just sort of conceptually slicing this a, a tiny bit different from you, Okay, but that's okay. So staying on this second view, it seems like there's obviously going to be a lot of empirical issues and issues in understanding persons and idealized versions of themselves. Before we get into inter-theoretic comparison issues here, what is your view on coherent extrapolated volition sort of being the answer to this second part? I don't really know that much about it. Uh, from what I do know, it always seemed underdefined. As I understand it, the key idea is just you take everyone's idealized preferences in some sense, and then I think what you do is just take a sum over everyone's preferences. I'm personally quite in favor of the summation strategy. I think we can make interpersonal comparisons of strengths of preferences, and I think summing people's preferences is the right approach. We can use certain kind of arguments that also have application in moral philosophy, like the idea of if you didn't know who you were going to be in society, how would you want to structure things? And if you're kind of rational, self-interested agent, maximizing expected utility, then you'll do the utilitarian aggregation function. So you'll maximize the sum of preference length. But then if we're doing this idealized preference thing, all the devil's going to be in the details of, well, how are you doing this idealization? Because given my preferences, for example, for what they are, 
I mean, my preferences are absolutely certainly they're incomplete. They're almost certainly cyclical. Who knows? Maybe there's even some preferences that I have that are irreflexive and things as well. Probably, you know, contradictory as well. So there's questions about what does it mean to kind of idealize? And that's going to be a very difficult question and where a lot of the work is, I think. So I guess just two things here. What is sort of the timeline and actual real world working in relationship here between the sort of second problem that you've identified and the third problem that you've identified? And what is the role and work that preferences are doing here for you within the context of AI alignment, given that you're sort of partial to a form of hedonistic consequentialism? Okay, terrific. Yeah, because this is kind of important framing is just in terms of answering this alignment problem, you know, the, the deep one of just where ought society to be going. I think the key thing is to punt it. The key thing is to get us to a position where we can think about and reflect on this question. And really for a very long time. So I call this the long reflection. Perhaps it's a period of a million years or something. Like we've got a lot of time on our hands. It's really not the kind of scarce commodity. So there are various kind of stages to getting to that state. The first is to reduce extinction risks down basically to zero, put us in a position of kind of existential security. The second then is to start developing a society where we can reflect as much as possible and keep as many options open as possible. Something that wouldn't be keeping a lot of options open would be, you know, say we've solved what I call the control problem. We've got these kind of lapdog AIs that are running the economy for us. And we just say, well, these are so smart. What we're going to do is just tell it, figure out what's right, and then do that. That would really not be keeping our options open. Even though I'm like sympathetic to moral realism and so on, I think that would be like quite a reckless thing to do. So instead, what we want to have is some kind of, we've gotten to this position of real security. Maybe also along the way, we've fixed the various particularly bad problems of the present, extreme poverty and so on. And now what we want to do is just keep our options open as much as possible and then kind of gradually work on improving our kind of moral understanding, where if that's supplemented by AI systems, I think there's tons of work that I'd love to see developing how this would actually work. But I think the best approach would be to get the artificially intelligent agents to be just doing moral philosophy, giving us arguments, perhaps creating new kind of moral experiences that it thinks can be informative and so on but letting the actual decision-making or like judgments about what is right or wrong be kind of left up to us, or at least have some kind of gradiated thing where we gradually transition the decision-making more and more from human agents to artificial agents. And maybe that's over a very long time period. What I kind of think of as the control problem and that second level alignment problem, those are issues you face when you're just you know, addressing the question of, okay, well, we're now going to have an AI-run economy. But you're not yet needing to address the question of what's actually kind of right or wrong. And then my main thing there is just, we should get ourselves into a position where we can take as long as we need to answer that question and have as many options open as possible. So I guess here, given moral uncertainty and other issues, we would also want to factor in issues with astronomical waste into how long we should wait. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely informing my view where it's at least plausible that morality has an aggregative component. And if so, then the sheer vastness of the future may, because you know we've got you know half a billion to a billion years left on Earth, hundred trillion years before the stars burn out, and then I always forget these numbers, but I think like a hundred billion stars in the Milky Way, ten trillion galaxies, you know, with just vast resources at our disposal, so the future could be astronomically good, 
could also be astronomically bad. What we want to ensure is that we get to the good outcome. And given the timescales involved, even what seem like an incredibly long delay, like a million years, is actually just very little time indeed. Right. So in half a second, I want to jump into whether or not this is actually likely to happen given race dynamics and the human beings are kind of crazy. The sort of timeline here is that we're solving the technical control problem up into and on our way to sort of AGI and what might be superintelligence. And then we are also sort of idealizing everyone's values and lives in a way such that they have more information and they can think more and have more free time and become idealized versions of themselves. Given constraints within issues of values canceling each other out and things that we might end up just deeming to be impermissible. And then after that is where this period of long reflection takes place and sort of the dynamics and mechanics of that are seeming open questions. So it seems that first comes computer science and global governance and coordination and strategy issues, and then comes long time of philosophy. Yeah, then comes the million years of philosophy. So I guess not very surprising a philosopher would suggest this. And then the dynamics of the setup is an interesting question and, you know, a super important one. Like one thing you could do is just say, well, we've got 10 billion people alive today. Let's say we're going to divide the universe into 10 billionths. So, you know, maybe that's a thousand galaxies each or something. And then you can trade after that point. I think that would get a pretty good outcome. You know, there's questions of whether you can enforce it or not into the future. There's some arguments that you can. But maybe that's not the optimal process, because especially if you think that, well, maybe there's actually some answer, something that is correct, well, maybe a lot of people miss that. I actually think, you know, if we did that, and if there is some correct moral view, then I would hope that incredibly well-informed people who have this vast amount of time, and, you know, perhaps intellectually augmented people and so on, who have this vast amount of time to reflect, would converge on that answer. And if they didn't, then that would make me more suspicious of the idea that maybe there is a real fact of the matter. But it's still early days. We really want to think a lot about what goes into the setup of that kind of long reflection. So given this account that you've just given about how this should play out in the long term or, or what it might look like, what is the actual probability, do you think, that this will happen given the way that the world actually is today and it's just the game theoretic forces at work? I think I'm going to be very hard pushed to give a probability. I don't think I know even what my subjective credence is. But speaking qualitatively, I think it would be very unlikely that this is how it will play out. Again, I'm like Brian and David, and I think if you look at just history, I do think moral forces have some influence. I wouldn't say they're the largest influence. I think probably randomness explains a huge amount of history especially when you think about how certain events are just very determined by actions of individuals. Economic forces and technological forces, environmental changes are also huge as well. And so it is hard to think at least that it's going to be likely that such a kind of well-orchestrated dynamic would occur. But I do think it's possible, and I think we can increase the chance of that happening by the careful actions that we're, people like FLI are doing at the moment. That seems like the sort of ideal scenario, absolutely. But I also am worried that people don't like to listen to moral philosophers or people and that potentially selfish government forces and things like that will end up taking over and controlling things, which is kind of sad for the cosmic endowment. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I think my chance is 
you know, if there was some hard to take off and, you know, sudden leap to artificial general intelligence, which I think is relatively unlikely, but again, is possible. I think that's probably the most scary because it means that a huge amount of power is suddenly in the hands of a very small number of people, potentially. So you could end up with the very long run future of humanity being determined by the idiosyncratic preferences of just a small number of people. So it'd be very dependent on whether those people's preferences are good or bad. With a kind of slow takeoff, so where there's many decades in terms of development of AGI and it gradually getting incorporated into the economy, I think there's somewhat more hope there. Society will be a lot more prepared. It's less likely that something very bad will happen. But, you know, my default presumption when we're talking about multiple nations, billions of people doing something that's like very carefully coordinated is not going to happen. We have managed to do things that have involved international cooperation and amazing levels of operational expertise and coordination in the past. I think the eradication of smallpox is perhaps a good example of that. But it's something that we don't see very often, at least not now. So it looks like that we need to create a uh, Peter Singer of AI safety or some other philosopher who has had a tremendous impact on politics and society to spread this sort of vision throughout the world such that it would more likely become realized. Is that potentially most likely? Yeah. I mean, I think if a wide number of the political leaders, even if just political leaders of US, China, Russia, all were on board with global coordination on the issue of AI, or again, whatever other transformative technology might really upend things in the 21st century. And we're on board with how important it is that we get to this kind of period of long reflection where we can really figure out where we're going, then that alone would be very promising. And then the question of just how promising is that, I think depends a lot on maybe the robustness of the kind of so even if you're a moral realist, there's a question of kind of how likely do you think it is that people will get the correct moral view? It could be the case that it's just this kind of strong attractor where even if you've got nothing as clean cut as the long reflection that I was describing, instead some really messy thing, perhaps there are various wars and it looks like feudal society or something. And, you know, anyone would say that civilization looks like chaotic. You know, maybe it's the case that even given that, just given enough time, and enough reasoning power, people will still converge in the same moral view. I'm probably not as optimistic as that, but it's at least a view that you could hold. So in terms of the different factors that are like going into the AI alignment problem and the different levels you've identified at the first, second, and third, which side do you think is lacking the most resources and attention right now? Are you most worried about the control problem, that first level, or are you more worried about potential global coordination and, and governance stuff at the potential second level or moral philosophy stuff at the third? Again, flagging, I'm sure I'm biased on this, but I'm like currently by far the most worried on the third level. That's for a couple of reasons. One is I just think the vast majority of the world are simple subjectivists or relativists. And so the idea that we ought to be engaging in real moral thinking about how we use society, where we go as society, how we use our cosmic endowment, as you put it, my strong default is that that question just never even really gets raised. You don't think most people are theological moral realists? Yeah, I guess it's true that I'm just thinking about... Our bubble. <laughs> my bubble, yeah. Well-educated Westerners. Most people in the world at least would say they're theological moral realists. 
So one thought is just that I think my default is that some sort of relativistic view will hold sway and people will just not really pay enough attention to think about what they ought to do. A second relevant thought is just, I think the best possible universe is plausibly really, really good, like astronomically better than alternative, extremely good universes. Absolutely. And it's also the case that if you're even like slight small differences in moral view might lead you to optimize for extremely different things. So even just a toy example of reference utilitarianism versus hedonistic utilitarianism, what you might think of as two very similar views. I think in the actual world, there's not that much difference between them because, you know, we just kind of know what makes people better off, at least approximately, improves their conscious experiences. It also is generally what they want. But when you're kind of technologically unconstrained, it's plausible to me that, you know, the optimal configuration of things will look really quite different between those two views. And so I guess I kind of think the default is that we get it very badly wrong and it will require really a sustained work in order to ensure we get it right if it's the case that there is a right answer. So is there anything with regards to issues in inter-theoretic comparisons or anything like that at any one of the three levels which we've discussed today that you feel we haven't sufficiently covered or something that you would just like to talk about? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I know that one of your listeners was asking whether I thought they were solvable, even in principle, by some superintelligence. Right. And I think they are. I mean, I think they are if other issues in moral philosophy are solvable. I think that's particularly hard, but I think ethics in general is very hard. I also think it is the case that, you know, whatever output we have at the end of this kind of long deliberation, again, it's unlikely we'll get to credence one in a particular view. So we'll have some distribution over different views and we'll want to take that into account. Maybe that means we do some kind of compromise action. Maybe that means we just distribute our resources in proportion with our credence in different moral views. That's, again, one of these really hard questions that we'll want, if at all possible, to punt on and leave to people who can think about this in much more depth. And then in terms of aggregating kind of societal preferences, that's more like the problem of interpersonal comparisons of preference length, which is kind of formally isomorphic, but is at least a different issue. At the second and the third levels is where the inter-theoretic problems are really going to be arising. And at that second level where the AGI is, I guess, potentially working to idealize our values, I think there is, again, the open question about in the real world, whether or not there will be moral philosophers at the table or in politics or whoever has control over the AGI at that point in order to work on and think more deeply about inter-theoretic comparisons of value at that level and timescale. And so just thinking a little bit more, I guess, about what we ought to do or what we should do realistically, given potential likely outcomes about whether or not this sort of thinking will or will not be at the table. You know, my default is just the crucial thing is to ensure that this thinking is more likely to be at the table. I think it is important to think about, well, what ought we to do then if we think it's just very likely that things go badly wrong? Because maybe it's not the case that we should just be aiming to push for the optimal thing, but there's some kind of second best strategy. I think at the moment we should just be trying to push for the optimal thing. In particular, that's in part because my views that an optimal universe is just so much better than even an extremely good one, that I just kind of think we ought to be really trying to maximize the chance that we can figure out what that is and then implement it. Um, But it would be interesting to think about more. For sure. So I guess just wrapping up here, did you ever have a chance to look at those two less wrong posts by Gorley? Yeah, I did. Uh, did you have any thoughts or comments on them? If people are interested, you can find links in the description. I read the posts and I was, you know, very sympathetic in general to what he was thinking through. 
in particular the principle of philosophical conservatism. Hopefully I've shown that I'm very sympathetic to that. So trying to think, what are the minimal assumptions? Would this system be safe? Would this path make sense? On a very, very wide array of different philosophical views. I think the approach I've suggested, which is keeping our options open as much as possible and punting on the really hard questions, does satisfy that. I think one of his posts was talking about, should we assume moral realism or assume moral anti-realism? Seems like there our views differed a little bit, where I'm more worried that everyone's going to assume some sort of subjectivism and relativism, and that there might be some you know, moral truth out there that we're missing. And you know we never think to find it because we decide that what we're interested in is maximizing X. And so we program agents to build X and then we just go ahead with it. Whereas actually the thing that we ought to have been optimizing for is Y. But broadly speaking, I think this question of trying to be as ecumenical as possible, philosophically speaking, makes a lot of sense. Wonderful. Well, it, it's really been a joy speaking, Will. Always a pleasure. Is there anything that you'd like to wrap up on anywhere people can follow you or check you out on social media or, or anywhere else? Uh, yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at Will McCaskill. If you want to read more on some of my work, you can find me at williammccaskill.com. So to be continued, thanks again, Will. It's really been wonderful. Great. Thanks so much, Lucas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, give it a like, or share it on your preferred social media platform. We'll be back again soon with another episode in the AI Alignment series.